Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host today, Inman Narrowin, and today we're going to be talking about some pretty horrible things going on in the world, which, you know, is, of course, we, we, we never talk about horrible things on this podcast. It's always, it's always really good and wonderful things. Um, but yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about a crisis that has been going on along the, uh, Arizona border, um, near the town of Sasa Bay. Um, and it's going to, it's going to tie in a lot of things that we've talked about on the show before, um, especially from like, uh, the no more deaths interviews. Um, so if you haven't listened to the no more deaths interviews, um, they're not, it's certainly not required, but if you do not have a, like a broad understanding of a history of like border militarization or fucking dumb things that border patrol does, um, it might be helpful to go back and listen to those episodes first, but yeah. But before we get to all that, we are a proud member of the channel zero network of anarchist podcasts. And here is a jingle from another show on that network. Do, 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 do. You will never, ever surrender or compromise. We occupied government buildings, we blockaded highways, and we talked about not just marching, but direct action to shut this shit down. We invite you to join us for Indigenous Action, a podcast where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities in the occupied lands known as the so-called United States or what many people recognize as Turtle Island. This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire and may the bridges we burn together light our way. Find us at indigenousaction.org and with the Channel Zero Network. And we're back. Um, thanks, y'all, so much for coming on the show today. Um, would, could y'all introduce yourself with your uh, name, pronouns, and I guess a little bit about like what 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 you do in the world that relates to what we're going to be talking about. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bryce, he, him. Um, I've been working with various uh, desert aid organizations over the past couple of years. Um, Tucson Samaritans, uh, No More Deaths, and some uh, search and rescue, search and recovery groups. Uh, I'm Ember, he, him, and been working with no more deaths uh, around Aravaca, Arizona, for the last year and a half. Cool. Um, and so there, there's been a lot of stuff happening at the wall recently, um, which you know is what is what we're here to talk about. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> do. Do y'all want to just? Tell us about what's what's going on at the wall. Yeah, I'll just preface it by saying, um, you know, we're very much just speaking as individuals who've been involved with wall stuff uh, around Sasabe, Arizona, which is about an hour south of Tucson. And just kind of, we'll talk more about it, but to just step back, this is a crisis that's happening all over uh, the border. Um and we're really going to be speaking primarily to the situation that's been unfolding around Sasabe um, in the last months and weeks and um, not speaking on behalf of No More Deaths or any other groups. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems like a huge, 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 like sprawling crisis of horrible things. But yeah, so I think, um, there's been a lot more media about 
what's happening in Hakumba or in Lukeville, uh, where hundreds or thousands of people have been coming through uh, the wall, not at port of entries, to uh, seek asylum and have been left out there in sort of makeshift camps for uh, days or weeks at a time, uh, waiting to be apprehended by Border Patrol. And uh, something similar has been happening east of Sasabe, uh, which is this like tiny, tiny, tiny little town, as Amber said, about an hour south of Tucson. Um, for the past couple years, people have been doing a similar thing of uh, coming through gaps in the border wall to seek asylum because they're blocked from, uh, from presenting themselves at port of entry. So over the past couple of years, it's mostly been like the Tucson Samaritans and Green Valley Samaritans that's been helping these people out because pretty much the situation was that if you don't call Border Patrol to come apprehend them, then Border Patrol will just never come. It's like a super remote area of the desert. There's a, a road that goes along the border wall that you can easily drive to get to these people, but Border Patrol just won't do it because it's not really worth their time. And so at times there would be people... Stuck out there for like three or four days, um, ran into one group that had written SOS in rocks and had built a fire just trying to get Border Patrol's attention. And um, this is like two years ago before any of this was even uh, in the news. And just it's kind of just slowly escalated until uh, beginning of November. Um, a lot of violence broke, down, broke out south of Sasabe and uh, the Mexican side. And it just, between that and just other dynamics happening, um, it just shifted things so that we suddenly started seeing um, just hundreds of people there uh, on the on the border wall seeking asylum. And where usually there were gaps closer to Sasa Bay where they could present so that Border Patrol could just show up in like buses or vans and pick people up. Now people were showing up much further east in more remote areas that are much more difficult to get to because of Biden's new border wall construction that, that blocked off access to some of these closer areas. So now so the situation quickly became that border patrol would take a very long time to pick anybody up. And because of the high volume of people, there's now like, yeah, just 20 kilometers or 30 kilometers away from the actual port of entry, people are having to hike or left overnight just in yeah, just in the middle of in the middle of nowhere, um, just building fires or doing whatever they can to to survive the night. And um, yeah, it's been about a couple months of that now. I'm gonna just reiterate to that you know a big call of a lot of groups is to open ports of entry because this is right stemming from the point that. People can't claim asylum at a port of entry. People are being forced to use this bullshit um, CBP app and wait for insane amounts of time, if ever, to be allowed to present for asylum. And so as we kind of hear the mainstream propaganda about what's going on, there's very little emphasis on the fact that the reason people are coming through gaps in the wall in really remote areas is fundamentally because they can't claim asylum at a port of entry and because the gaps are being closed nearby. And that's just really important to ground it because there's just so much uh, misinformation about that. Um, for for folks who, who don't know, why can't people claim, like apply for asylum at a port of entry? I think there's a lot of um, confusion and misinformation about this. Um, a lot of people, I think, thought that that was going to change um, when Title 42 was repealed or... Um, thinking it had something to do with the uh, MPP, the Remaining Mexico policy. But this actually was, it was a separate policy decision in uh, that at first like got some media exposure. It started with metering back in like 2017 or something sometime during uh, where they would, where they would just let in a certain amount of people. And then uh, CBP agents would actually block people um, before they got to the port of entry and say, we can't take any more people. You have to show us your passport, all this stuff. And then that turned into during COVID, we're just not going to take anybody. 
And then now with Biden, it's continued where if you don't have a CBP-1 app, CBP agents will just turn you away at the port of entry. And there's been a lot of legal stuff about it. Like I think in San Diego, there was like a couple big court cases where they say you can't continue doing this or, um, but the Biden administration has come out saying like, we don't actually turn people away at the port of entry. We don't do turnbacks. Um, but clearly on the ground, that is what's happening. And so I think people think of it as like, there's some big law that needs to be changed or that like, you know, people are trying to like do something sketchy by coming between ports of entry or not at the port of entry or that there is a legal pathway through the CBP one app and people just aren't doing it. But really the CBP one app forces people, it's essentially the remain in Mexico policy, but without the remain in Mexico policy. And then if people try to, present themselves at the port of entry, which they should be allowed to do, they're just turned away. And there's not like some, there's not some big thing causing this to happen. It's just pure like policy that could be changed like very, very soon if they actually had the desire to do it. Yeah. So it's like with, like with this app, like people are being asked to like download an app to like apply for asylum through. And then they, they just like, wait for a notification yeah and then once they and i'm this should all be nobody should take my word for any of this because i'm not like a fucking asylum lawyer or something um this is just like totally totally talking to people my understanding of it so definitely don't uh don't don't take it too seriously but um from what i understand people are um people download the app and they once they get the notification that they have an appointment then they have to get to the port of entry where that appointment is within like 24 hours or something and then just get to it. But pe- there's no like, yeah, people await, you know, a couple months, six months, a year. Um, and they just are sort of in limbo until, uh, until they get their appointment. Golly, this sounds like a, this sounds like a sick joke of like people like, wait, I, I'm not even going to make the comparison. This sounds like a sick fucking joke, but um, and so this has been happening for quite some time. Um, but like very recently, like things kind of, uh, got, got a lot worse in Arizona or like around Sasa Bay. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it definitely seems like a big part of it is whatever, um, fighting between rival factions of the cartel south of the border, um, it's hard to really say exactly, but at the same time that people were started coming in higher numbers this last two months, um, people also started coming through uh, the San Miguel Gate on the Tohono O'odham uh, Nation uh, in even higher numbers than here. And over there, there's uh, not nearly as much uh, like as Border Patrol was uh, promising to you know, set up structures and give water and all that stuff. But in the end, there's just really not a lot of uh, support over there. Like there, you know, what we have here, um, there's been a lot of like community, community support and donations coming in, which has been great. But um, over at San Miguel, there's, there's not even, there's not even that, which, which is already inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And maybe this is, this, this is sort of me asking like a, a question that I've that I've had about all of this. Um, I, I've I've heard that like the the town of Sasabe is like like I've heard it referred to like as like a, a ghost town right now. Um, yeah, I mean it, it, the I think there's like 20 residents left or something like that. Um, I a, f- a couple of friends of mine went down there recently to visit a, a friend who's still living there, and she runs a. a uh, migrant outreach center in the town, which hasn't really had people in it, but it's doing fine. The garden is still going. Um, Hell yeah. I do know people are definitely interested in coming back if, and when things calm down. Do you, I guess, do y'all want to talk about like what y'all have been experiencing, um, in kind of like the last week, I guess. Yeah. I mean, 
pretty much kind of um, as Bryce was saying, there's been uh, folks responding to this, primarily the, the Samaritans as like a formal group from Tucson and Green Valley who've been responding to this for much longer. Um, but folks involved with, with No More Deaths really got involved more significantly about a month ago um, because of the massive increase in the numbers of people out there um, and people being pushed further out into the desert. And that response um, has grown quite a bit, kind of started with a few people uh, from No More Deaths who were getting involved and then uh, has exponentially increased in the last week. Um, it was a situation that was uh, really, really challenging in terms of like uh, the amount of resources, supplies, need for stuff, like basically hundreds of people, primarily a lot of children and babies and families and elders um, stuck out in the like increasingly becoming winter temperatures uh, with completely inadequate supplies. Most people who expected to be picked up um, immediately and were instead waiting for up to three to four days um, in in the winter conditions in very remote areas of the desert. Like the border wall outside of this area um, goes just right through very, very mountainous terrain. And so the border wall, you know, there's a road on the border wall, but it's it's basically, as you get far out, just being completely out in the middle of the desert. It's an insane road. It just goes com- like straight up and down mountains. And so people are stuck out there for at times up to multiple, many days, may have been waiting on the other side for some days before they crossed. And so a lot of the original response um, in like, as our group started to get involved was just primarily supplies distro and medical care and medical triage. Um, And I mean, just to give a context of how many people were out there, um, I think we had originally an emergency request for $10,000 and we used that money in about a week. Um, Oh my God. So, uh, and that's primarily like food, water, blankets, uh, you know, over the counter meds um, and gas for the trucks and things like that. Um, Things really came to a head. I mean, it was a very untenable situation, unsustainable situation in terms of like people going out there regularly and being like, people are going to die out here. Um, this is a, a really fucked up situation. Uh, people trying to pressure and call border patrol to pick people up, which they were slow to do. So sometimes they would do regularly. Sometimes they would take a lot longer. Um, but last Friday, there was there was a massive uh, rainstorm, and we had those of us who had been involved in kind of organizing support around it had already kind of started to put out larger calls for support, realizing this was way out of the depths of just what our group could respond to, and so we were putting out larger calls for support from like the Tucson community, from Aravakans, um, which is a town about fifteen miles from Sasabe. Um, And we were preparing a little bit for the rain in terms of the day before set up some tarp structures um, at some of the places people were, were, were waiting. Um, But what happened on Friday, uh, I think really expanded the, the calls to mobilize and got way more people involved. Um, And yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to Bryce if you want to talk a little bit about what, what happened on Friday. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess some other context would be like increasingly, I mean, we had to do a lot of advocacy for uh, emergency situations because like Amber said, it's, it was really just like, you know, kids, infants, um, people that were not prepared to be out like, you know, 30 mile, 30 kilometers from a road. Um, coming just with like the clothes on their backs or maybe like a little day pack or something, but really kind of expected to be picked up by border patrol immediately. And there's a lot of people that had just 
kind of started out with very serious medical conditions. Um, even there's at least a few cases that I was personally involved in of people coming to the United States specifically to seek medical care for their children. So it'd be like a kid with kidney disease or, you know, needing some kind of medicine daily that hadn't had it for multiple days or like really serious things. Um, you know, some woman who's nine months pregnant and having medical issues, I mean, really serious things that, um, where somebody should just not be out in the middle of the desert and the kind of advocacy we had to do for like on nine one one, which is really obscene. Like we'd call nine one one, say there's somebody out here with some particular medical emergency. Um, they'd ask the nationality of the person, um, whether they were entering the United States illegally, things like that. And then transfer us to border patrol and, Border Patrol would either drop the call or say, okay, we're sending somebody. And then we sit there for six hours. And of course, nobody comes. Um, there were times when Border Patrol would actually would come out. They'd check out like two or three 911 calls, say, okay, this person is not going to die today and then leave. Um, and then we eventually were able to convince some ambulances to occasionally come out for like very, very serious cases. But even then they started getting upset with us for quote unquote crying wolf and, um, and just the amount of advocacy that we had to do even to get that response was just, I mean, it would, it would just be hours of calling everybody with, we knew with connections to be able to get an ambulance down there. And then even then we would get threatened with arrest by border patrol for transporting people to the highway to rendezvous with an ambulance, even with permission of the ambulance. And so when, the rainstorm came, it was this sort of perfect storm where we had a system in place where we were sort of prepared to medevac the most serious patients out of there and just sort of keep everybody else like alive until Border Patrol came to pick people up because, and then we would advocate for, okay, these people really need to be taking first. You need to take these people first, which in itself is a really compromising permission, permission, uh, position to be in just because, yeah, we're acting as an intermediary between people and like their physical safety and like the asylum process. It's like this weird, like we're not the government, but we're fulfilling this weird government role. And yeah, it's a very weird thing. But um, when the rain storm happened, we were not prepared for the reality of border patrol, just not showing up at all. Um, they had been pretty consistently, even if we don't see them all day, they eventually show up at like five or six, especially if we like call a million times and advocate and call 911 and all that, all that. And so the roads were muddy, but we were doing in our janky little trucks. We were driving back and forth just fine. And, uh, and somewhere around like two or three, it started, we started to realize that just nobody was coming and they were like, I don't know why after everything we've all been through that anybody would have had any faith in border patrol to avoid, to want to avoid a mass casualty incident. But here they were seemingly just like willingly causing one um, just to give kind of like an example of what the scene looked like. We, showed up things were already pretty bad like people were in good spirits just because you know they've been traveling so long they're glad to finally be there and um having a good sense of humor about things is kind of the only way to survive something horrible like that um people were still kind of in that space when we showed up um, we handed out food water um most people just even though we had built some like really rudimentary tarp structures um, people generally opted to just keep walking because they didn't want to just be stuck out there um, in the cold and rain. Um, and we every time we drove back and forth along the wall, we just noticed people getting increasingly more desperate as they realized that they're just stuck out in the middle of the desert in this rain. And to the point where there was just no way to properly triage. There would just be, we were just sort of bouncing or instead of actually helping people out, we were just bouncing around from emergency to emergency. Uh, we were like be on our way to an emergency and then just see somebody 
um, laying in like a puddle of water, just in agonizing pain. Cause even, you know, somebody gets a muscle cramp and can't stand anymore. And then they're just laying in the cold and rain. They don't have warm gear. They don't have anything waterproof. They're just laying there and it becomes a medical emergency, um, just because they're stuck out in the elements in this rainstorm. And so we'd be on our way to some medical emergency and have to drop two people off to go deal with another one. And then just hope that another of our trucks would come back to get people. And yeah, we started just having to treat it as, I mean, Ember could speak more to the medical stuff. Um, cause in EMT, but, uh, there were, we had nurses with us, uh, other medical people who essentially just started treating the triage as if it was, as if it was going to be a mass casualty incident. Yeah. I mean, um, Friday set, uh, like historic rainfall records in Tucson, there was like an inch of rain. Um, and there was probably almost that much where we were. Um, and we're talking about, you know, winter desert rain. So, you know, 4,000, almost 4,000 feet elevation, like freezing, temp- almost freezing temperatures and dumping, dumping rain, um, including large amounts of, uh, thunder and lightning and the lightning keep in mind that everybody who's there is against this like 30 foot metal border wall um and so just a really really scary situation um and it very quickly became obvious as bryce said that we were it was going to be way overwhelming for our the capacity of the amount of people who are out there to respond to um it kind of started in the morning. There were a few Samaritans, which a group out of Tucson and Green Valley, a few Samaritans vehicles out there, and then a few No More Deaths trucks came out. Um, but one of the first things we did when we really understood the scope of the situation was just put out a massive call for more support, which was really inspiring to see really come out that night. Um, but obviously, it takes time for people to mobilize. So we we really tried those of us who were on the ground there really realized okay this really has the potential to be a a really horrific mass casualty situation and i i want to say i have no um no illusions about border patrol no illusions about the state giving a shit about people seeking asylum dying in the desert and i but i was surprised based on my experiences the the in the few weeks prior i was genuinely surprised that border patrol completely refused to come out at all. Um, and once that became clear, I think our plans really changed because those of us who were responding that day, our plans for the rain were really try to build, you know, have some, some shelters, but fundamentally like keep people okay until they can get picked up by border patrol and brought to, uh, an actual, um, place to be warm and dry. And as it became clear that Border Patrol was absolutely not going to come that day, and we were we had Border Patrol liaisons on the phone with them, and they were being pretty explicit about, yeah, we can't come. It's raining. Obviously, they can. Um, they have trucks way better than our trucks, and they they chose not to at all. And once that became clear, I think our mission really changed quite drastically um, to where okay, we need to get as many people to these shelters and we need to build more shelters, but fundamentally we need to get people off the wall. Um, just from uh, a medical perspective, I mean, I was um, rolling out in the morning with my friend who's who's a nurse who's been in a lot of disaster contexts and situations, and he was like, holy shit, this is one of the worst things I've ever seen. Like, uh, people... I think he said, this is the worst thing I've seen. He yeah, said, this he is- said... He said, this is the worst thing I've seen uh, and equated it to uh, when he was in Haiti after the earthquake. Um, it was it was a situation where I think those of us out there were went in once we realized the extent of the situation and thinking like we are going to see a lot of children die today. Um, a lot. You know, it was and I will preface this by saying uh, that we know of nobody did did die that day and i think that was because of generally just choices of people responding on the ground people taking care of each other who were out there on the wall and pure luck of breaks in the rain is the reason for that i think um it was a situation that could have a lot of people absolutely could have and would have died um but you know before the rainstorm 
there have been a lot of conversations about, you know, should we be driving people to the substation, which is, you know, where, where people can be processed by border patrol that has a certain capacity limit in the town of Sasebe. And there were a lot of these conversations about the legal risks of that, the potential dangers to people seeking asylum. Um, cause to keep in mind, like most people, when we'd been out there for, for the time any of us had been out at the wall, most people wanted rides to the substation. Um, that was, you know, a big thing people wanted and needed. That's where they were trying to get to. And there was all these conversations about the the potential dangers of that legal risk. And what we encountered on Friday in the rainstorm was a situation where there was simply like no choice. I mean, we were able to have some janky makeshift shelters at two camps along the wall that people, some people did stay in and were trying to like treat and warm and dry and triage those people. But there were about 150 people. Um, there was over 300 people out in the wall that day. And there was about 150 people who were walking past the last camp, the 12 to 15 miles between the the camp. And and by camp, I mean like a very shitty, janky tarp structure setup. I don't mean like a, a, real, a real camp. Um, but there were about 150 people walking between the town of Sasebe, that like 12 to 15 miles to the camp. Those people were out in the rain with no protection whatsoever. And so after, after we did some triage and made sure that, you know, the people further back on the wall were at one of these makeshift camps, um, we made the decision that was not even really a choice, but just fundamentally like people are going to die if we don't drive everyone to the substation. So we made a choice to evacuate everyone on the road in like multiple caravans of trucks and shuttles to the substation, um, while calling border patrol, telling them what we were doing, um, making it clear that it wasn't really a choice. It was like people, people are going to die if they don't get to, um, get to the station. And, um, we weren't really sure how that they would react to that. They border patrol did process everybody that was brought to the station. Um, they got buses down from Tucson and at the same time they were, um, being pretty hostile with volunteers that were um, evacuating people there, including uh, a lot of threats of arrests that people would be arrested and to not be doing this. Um, but no, no volunteers were arrested, and everybody who was evacuated to the substation was processed uh, within the next chunk of hours. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of changed the whole whole dynamic in a sense. Um, and the other thing that changed the dynamic is just this massive call for mobilization and support. So a lot of people from Tucson and Aravaca um, came down to support that evening. And um, and we were really in a triage situation all, all day and night um, of evacuating um, kind of the most vulnerable and medically um, unwell people. Um, to the border patrol station and trying to do our best to make the, uh, the makeshift camps, uh, slightly safer, but fundamentally they were extremely inadequate shelters for people in the conditions that we were in. Dang. Yeah, that, (laughs) that sounds, that sounds harrowing and just fucking terrible. Um, I, I don't, I don't have a real emotional response to it because it's just it's just fucked. Um, but I don't know. It's like this thing where it feels like th- like things we've talked about um, on the show before with um, uh, Sophie and Parker from from No More Deaths, like um, talked like talking to us about like the like Border Patrol's kind of uh, their their tendency to create a like humanitarian crisis um that they then refuse to respond to um but like they also like at the same time you know they they claim to like they claim all the time to like rescue people from the desert or they uh or yeah (laughs) it's like like framing themselves as these like humanitarian actors when they're the ones who are like creating these crises and then like completely not responding to them or like, I don't know, like hearing, like hearing more kind of like confirmation of like, um, 
like discrimination on of like like medical like dispatchers and stuff to like respond to calls or to like pass that off to border patrol who then just like doesn't respond i don't know it's it's just terrible and it's like like border patrol is like perfectly capable of responding to this to the to these to these crises right oh totally well and even in this case like with the same because eventually they do get everybody so if they just they're basically they're making the choice in addition to like border wall asylum all that stuff even like with the current situation as it is they're making the choice to leave people out there versus if they just went and got everybody they say their issue is capacity for processing people but why not have them wait in Sasabe or near the station or somewhere where they're not in the middle of the desert they could just go get everybody bring them to the station and have them wait where an ambulance can arrive, where um, people can easily show up and give them help, where they're not just, I mean, there's vigilantes along the wall. There's like um, gun battles for many days. We were hearing automatic gunfire just south of where people were waiting for asylum. Like it's very much, even outside of like the danger of the desert itself, it is not a good place to be waiting. These people are freaking terrified and but the benefit of them being there for border patrol is that they're totally invisible so they're just sort of like hiding what a thing that should be happening in public view in front of the border patrol station in the middle of the desert where there's just extreme danger if they wanted to they could bring everybody to a safer place it would be like bad for PR because then we'd have a bunch of news articles about like, oh, these people are like being kept in an open air detention facility or whatever. But yeah. they're essentially doing the same thing, but because it's far enough away from the public eye and from their own facilities, it just yeah, it just becomes invisible in a way. The same as, you know, Border Patrol's nonsense that they get up to um, with other kinds of people crossing the border. Um and prevention through the turrets, all of that policy, the suffering really is the point. I think they're hoping that people will tell stories back home of like they showed up and things were really bad and we almost died and there was this rainstorm or whatever. Don't do it this way. Um, and the same way that their narratives kind of like push things on like the quote unquote smugglers as being like these predatory people that, which they are, but as being like, it's them that's doing this. They're the ones that causing this, that's causing this and just really like outsourcing any blame of anything onto, onto other people. Yeah. It like the, I, I think like, like this situation, it makes me wonder if like, if border patrol is like, is making this conscious choice to where with like open air detention, open air detention facilities, like, they're in Arizona at least are just like, Oh, we don't, we don't want to deal with that. Or we don't want to deal with the PR. Like we just don't want to deal with it. So we're going to like do this other thing to like push people further out or to like really invisibilize it. Like you're talking about, I don't know that that seems like a very border patrol thing to do, (laughs) which is horrible to laugh about. But I guess like uh, you talked a little bit about like, border patrols like responses to what's going on um or to like interventions that people are taking i'm I'm just wondering if there's any any more anything more to say about like how border patrol is reacting to how people are intervening in the situation there's been um significant threats of arrest um to people as we've continued to evacuate people to the substation um, and to people that are just walking to the makeshift camps. Um, there's been continual threats of arrest. Some volunteers have had their IDs taken and said they were coming back for them to arrest them. Um, fundamentally, we feel extremely st- strongly um, that obviously we would be doing it even if it wasn't legal um, because it's the right thing to do because we're not going to, we're going to do what we can to keep people from dying. But fundamentally, we feel very strongly that it is completely legal what we're doing, and we will not back down from threats from Border Patrol and have been pretty explicit with them 
about that. Yeah. Also, um, after one of those threats of arrest, they did go up to the further camp, which usually is a lot of women and children. And they picked up just a few people. They could have picked up way more. They just picked up a few people and said, wait in three lines. We're coming back for the rest. Um, the people all, it was, I think like maybe a hundred people or so they all waited in lines, border patrol left and then just never came back. And so people ended up standing in lines for hours, um, thinking that they were going to miss their place in line or mess up if they left the lines and just this like really cruel display of, um, and this was right after we got some media attention for the thing that happened during the rain. So, um, maybe punishing them for what we were up to or, you know, who knows how those people think. But um, that was one thing that we saw. Um, Another thing is we've actually been caught by border patrol while transporting people and they stopped and essentially thanked us. Um, So there's, in addition to threats of arrest, we've also gotten that because I mean, if you're a border patrol agent and you have, and you believe your own bullshit about like your humanitarian, all these things or whatever, then by those standards, hypothetically, we are actually doing your job and you should be thankful for what we're up to by moving people. And this one agent we've run into a few different times has definitely had that attitude, um, which is, yeah, I, I don't know whether, yeah, I don't even know how to think about that, but um, but it, it's made it so that it's gave it, given us a little bit more confidence in what we're doing. Um, but also has like set up a weird thought of like, Oh shit. At what point are they going to stop picking people up because they think we're going to do it? At what point are we really just unpaid fucking border patrol agents? And so I think there's a big, and even just our, our role in, the camps and all this stuff, like how much of what we're actually doing to save lives is, is playing into um, the, the wants and needs of the border patrol. And so trying to figure out ways to um, we, we have, we've been talking a lot internally about ways to um, uh, ways to push back on that and sort of like change tactics of what we're doing in order to, um, in order to pressure them to be doing the right thing rather than this unsustainable thing in which we're like clothing, feeding, housing, and triaging hundreds of people a day, which is just like wildly unsustainable. I mean, it seems like this, this, this thing that's become like very wildly unsustainable. Um, And I know that y'all have like recently put out like this, like big call for like what, for like think like things needing to be different or like just like broader kind of community support. Just wondering if y'all wanted to talk about talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, the calls for support really started to come out of you know conversations after a few weeks of folks in our group responding really heavily to the situation and realizing that we needed way more. Uh, support and also, I mean, for one, support of people um, autonomously responding to the situation outside of our organization, and also more like visibilization of the of what's going on because it was very invisible. There's a few news stories about things going on in other parts of the of the borderlands, similar situations or even worse situations, but really not the attention um, that the extent of the situation demanded. So those calls for support went out before the rain, but the rain day really amplified it. A lot of people um, from larger networks in the area came out that night, and it led to huge, uh, way more numbers of people getting involved. And part of it is us really trying to encourage a non-outside-of-our-organization in autonomous response from um, – more people regionally to the situation that can obviously look a lot of different ways. And I don't think any of us presume to know what the best strategy or way to go about this is, but that, 
you know, making it more visible and having more people involved is, is an important and good thing. And I will add to that. Um, this is obviously a situation going on throughout the, the borderlands, but I think we're in a unique position because of where we are, because of our proximity to Tucson, because of networks of mutual aid and support that exist in these areas because of the proliferation of aid groups that exist in these areas. Um, and just generally, yeah, large networks of individuals that are down to support with something like this. I think there's a potential for us to really build a lot of mobilization and support here um, that hopefully can also help spread and support other places where people are trying to respond to the crises in in their areas. Um, some of which, as Bryce was talking about, are are significantly worse than what's happening here. Um, but it obviously also breeds enormous questions about like what are we actually doing? Um, what is what is our role here? And yeah, and what are we doing? And I don't think you know anyone presumes to to know the answers to all those questions. Yeah, I think in terms, it's like in terms of like like what the role of aid groups is, like just. <laughs> just wanting to bring up this like kind of weird maybe complexity of like i don't know it sounds it sounds really it sounds really weird to have to put yourself in like the position of like it's like of helping people get to border patrol or like helping people get to like situations that are like like a potential like you know open air detention facility or a detention facility that's like as hellish as it is like out in the desert but like i don't know that it it seems like a real it seems like a real mind fuck and i don't know <laughs> this isn't really a question just a just a thought it's fucked up yeah 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 um i i was we talked a little off air about this um but w- so there, there has been a little bit of kind of like media attention and um, I, I know that y'all have not been exactly happy about like the media, like what like large media sources are, are saying about like what's happening. Um, I was wondering if y'all wanted to, to talk about like kind of like what kind of like media myths or narratives you see going around that don't reflect what's happening. Yeah, and I think on a personal level, uh, just those of us that were out Friday that had been out for weeks before, you know, there had been a lot of conversations about the role of media and our general hesitation with media with most of our other work. But it just became clear that there had to be a significant push for a lot more media outreach about what was going on and about what happened that rain day because it was just a question of this is just going to continue to happen and and we need to visibilize this more. Um, there was a journalist, a local journalist who was out, who came out during the rainstorm and, um, and wrote like a, a, a solid story about, um, what was happening. Um, but the larger, like mainstream media attention to it has been, uh, pretty horrific. Um, I'll say the New York times came out, um, out here a few days ago and um, wrote like a disgusting propaganda piece that basically it was a, a piece about how, you know, hordes of people are, are coming into the country and border patrol is so overwhelmed at doing everything they can and trying to rescue as many people as they can, but they're so overwhelmed. Um, it felt very much like the liberal media version of like uh, an invasion of the country and border patrol being overwhelmed. I mean, um, I think it's really scary that those are the, are the stories that are taking shape in like the kind of more centrist or liberal mainstream media, um, with no context of why people are coming here, no context of why people are being pushed out into the remote areas of the desert, no context about how much money border patrol has and their absolute refusal to, um, do their job, uh, in this case, which is to process people that are seeking asylum, none of that context. And instead a a story that literally is about, you know, border patrol, just like trying to do everything they can to save these people being manipulated by smugglers. And, um, 
it was also in the New York Times was next to an article about the kind of fear mongering about a large migrant caravan that's that's uh, coming up through Mexico right now. And just felt very much part of this this media narrative that is really just like playing into the worst um, fascist impulses. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty horrific article. Yeah, and, and in addition to that, I mean, the New York Times article, um, in addition to other articles that um, ended up talking about the rainstorm and some of what we've been dealing with, were really tucked into a different story about um, the record number of migrant apprehensions. It seems like all these news media outlets were just sort of waiting for those numbers to get released. And then they kind of had these pre-written articles and anything about the humanitarian disaster was just sort of tucked into that, which that narrative is always like, there's too many people at the border, border patrol is overwhelmed and they're not really interested in any other narrative whatsoever. Um, And which is just really like, Bizarre because I mean when when a journalist comes out and we talk to them, the first thing we explain is like it's it's so much the opposite to what we actually see on the ground. Um like the migrant apprehension data is inflated because there's now rather than people seeking asylum at a port of entry, they're coming through irregularly where that gets put in as a border patrol migrant apprehension. So it seems like numbers wise that there's some like huge surge of, you know, the numbers are just off the charts and they've never seen anything like this before, but these people actually should be under an entirely different system altogether coming through a port of entry. And in which case the migrant apprehensions would probably not change that much at all. Um, And so there's this, this like, narrative gets pushed forth where you look at this increase in numbers, which is totally fake. And, uh, and then you get to show border patrol in a place where we've been going out and just seeing, dealing with like the most terrific medical emergencies every single day and watching border patrol do nothing to stop it. And also causing the situation in the first place, it shows them like rescuing people. I think the New York times article specifically said like, you know, under the caption for one of the pictures, it was like um, border patrol leaves with a group of people and rushes off to go rescue some more people or something like that, which as you were saying before, it's like they cause a problem and then gives themselves credit for rescues, which is just like not just upsetting and false, but just like insulting on a human level, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they're really, they're quite they're quite adept at, at what they do, which is creating humanitarian crises that they then uh, pretend to respond to so that everyone thinks that they're humanitarian actors. Meanwhile, they're like sitting on their asses doing nothing. Um, um, Well, I mean, literally when we were evacuating people to the, the station that day, they were sitting on their asses doing nothing, not wanting to get up while there was a massive rainstorm and asking us, you know, like, how do you know these people are cold? Yeah. That was a question. L- literally. I, what, that was a question I was literally asked. Literally. Um, and this was with a group of like mostly children who had been out in the freezing rain and were in severe danger of hypothermia. Um, and they literally were, how do you know these people are cold? And, and then since we started building shelters, they would ask, oh, do they have shelter? Using our little like half-assed last ditch effort to fucking have not people not die against us or as an excuse to not go pick people up because they have quote unquote shelter. You know, I mean, it's just horrific. Um, and Ember, are we... Do we have permission to say the correction thing? Oh, yeah. I think we should say it. I mean, um, the, yeah. I'm so curious about what's going to be said. So the New York Times, their original article that they published, um, so we we sat, we all sat together and read it together. We're like, oh, we're all yelling like, what the fuck? Like, that's bullshit. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's total fuck. Anyways, we get to the end and see they have a paragraph saying, last Friday – um, border patrol had to evacuate 
300 people during this like rainstorm that like almost caused all these deaths or whatever. And we were just like, I almost threw the computer across the room. It was just like, you know, we expected an awful narrative, but to have not just a lie, but the literal opposite of what happened, like the people that caused the pro, you know, cause it would have been messed up no matter what on that day. But we expected stupidly Border Patrol to show up in like sort of the same way that they had been. And so by not showing up, they actually caused a potential mass casualty incident. So to give them credit for averting something that just outside of anything, any context just was going to happen and Border Patrol rescued people and not like some like random like scrappy punks from Tucson wandered down into the desert and like at threat of arrest, like drove a bunch of people to the border patrol station was just like, like, I don't even have words for like, what, what do you even fucking do with that? Like, yeah, yeah I, it's, it was, so we, we, um, our, one of our media people, um, forced them to make a correction and they quickly did. They didn't fix the rest of the heinous fucking article, but they at least changed that, which they also seem to credit it to Border Patrol, but our person was there during their interview with Border Patrol, and at no point did Border Patrol claim to have rescued anybody on that day. So this was just New York Times on their own, just coming up with some bullshit out of thin fucking air. And and when they corrected it, they never. There's no note in the article that says a previous version was um, had this lie in it, and it was corrected. But I will also add that the article on the website was also next to an ad for ExxonMobil and the other articles next to it were like <laughs> defending the genocide of Palestinian kids because IDF spokesperson says it's justified. So we also obviously shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like we see the same thing over and over and over again of governments and causing horrifying things to happen and then blaming it on some shadowy thing and then taking credit for fixing it or making it worse. Wow. Yeah. That's fucked up. Like fucking shame on the New York times. I know this is not a new thing for anyone to hear, but fucking shame on y'all. I don't know. Yeah. It's upsetting. It's beyond upsetting. Um, well, I, you know, I, I, I want to end on a positive note. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what's, what's some like, what's some inspiring shit? Cause also this is, this is like, like, I don't know. It's, it, I feel like it's easy to get wrapped into this, uh, this, the, the, the horrifying reality of like, oh, we're just like doing border patrol job for them or um like how sustainable is this or like we're just you know but like y'all have been doing like people have been doing some truly inspiring shit and i think that's like really worth like reflecting on and like we'll continue to do really amazing amazing things to respond to these like horrifying things i don't know i mean also, just right afterwards, the like huge community mobilization that happened and continues to happen um, has just been uh, not surprising, but just like just really amazing. Like knowing that in some situation like this, people can just the 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 Tucson community will just throw down so hard and so quickly for some shit is just like I mean I think brought us all to tears. Like the next day when we went down to collect donations and stuff. Yeah, the supply drives have been like wild. Like that's yeah, I don't know. Ember, you yeah. have any inspiring inspiring shit to go out on? <laughs> yeah, I mean everything Bryce said and just like I mean, the night with the rainstorm where it's like what we really realized we needed at a point is just like people are building tarp structures, people are taking care of each other. But like what we really needed at a certain point was just more trucks to drive people and evacuate people to the substation. And we would just get kind of convoy after convoy late in the evening and at night of 
um, friends or people we don't even know through our networks um, coming down. And it was really fucked up because it wasn't Border Patrol who we needed to fucking pick people up. But to just see so many people come out on really last minute notice and be able to help with evacuating lots of people, what we needed was those vehicles and more and more people and people really showed up and continue to show up. Um, and it's the same thing people are doing all over the country in response to this, um, you know, from cities where people are mobilizing to support asylum seekers that are, you know, just being dropped off in random cities and, um, to just like other places along the border where people are responding to this at, at its inception point at the wall. Like, it's it's really yeah the amount of mobilization um is is pretty awesome of just people like trying to take care of each other um on all levels is there is there any 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 things y'all want to say before we before we break um any like like you know broader call like things things people who are listening uh hundreds or thousands of miles away can do I mean, I think, you know, on a, on a small scale, people are going to do what they can in the places they are, but on a larger scale, it's like a lot of these media narratives, um, a lot of the, the right wing push, um, all of that is really gonna, gonna continue to grow and, um, push for like harsher, gnarlier border policies. And I think the, really the thing that can push back against that is people mobilizing together and organizing against it. And I do think there is power for, um, or potential for with enough, you know, people power for things to actually not get gnarlier. Um, but you know, go in the other direction. And I think we, we really have to like, keep that in mind that we can't just like submit to the idea that, you know, the right wing and the mainstream news outlets are just going to push this narrative and, policies are going to get stricter and stricter like we have power to push back against that um as people everywhere mobilizing and organizing together so great well i mean you know not great but shit great that people are doing great things in response um i'm a little emotionally emotionally deadened right now because i this because everything's just really fucked um, thanks y'all so much for coming on today and talking about what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, if anyone in the Arizona area wants to donate four by four trucks, donate your four by four truck. It will die a <laughs> <Please>. glorious death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, a couple trucks have already died on on the border wall road. So, uh, trucks very needed. Yeah, I will add too. Obviously, we prefaced it we're, that we're just talking about this one area, but maybe we could link in the show notes to just some of the other struggles of other of other groups and communities. Um, you know, pushing back and, and mobilizing for similar shit too. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's all over too. I mean, the stuff in uh, California has gotten a lot of coverage, but also in Texas, this stuff is happening um, just as much. So it's it's really like border wide, and it's somehow managed to be pretty invisible or co opted into other narratives. But yeah, pushing pushing back on that, I think, is super important. Cool. Well, thanks y'all for coming on today, and hope y'all hope, hope you get. <laughs> Hope you get some rest. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, then do what you can to fight border militarization and do what you can to support asylum seekers um, in your city um, or go out and respond. If you're like near a place where um, similar things like what's happening in Arizona and Sasabe um, is happening, then go out and get involved. See what you see what you can do to help. And also if you like this show, you can support it. Um, you can support this show by liking, subscribing, following, whatever these words are I'm 
clearly actually detached from <laughs> how the algorithm works. And you can also just tell people about the show. It's one of the better ways to support it. And um, one of, and just one of the ways that people hear about the show. You can also support uh, Live Like the World is Dying by supporting our publisher, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a radical publishing collective. We put out books, zines, um, other podcasts, obviously. Um, and you can support strangers by buying books. You can support strangers by listening to our other podcasts, uh, like my other podcast, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, um, or uh, our other podcast, the Spectacle, which was formerly... Anarcho Geek Power Hour. You can also support strangers by supporting us on Patreon. Um, if you support us on Patreon for $10 a month, then we'll mail you a cool zine every month anywhere in the world. Um, and you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Um, and if you support us at $20 a month, then we will give you a really awesome thank you at the end of all of our podcasts, which are the names that you usually hear. Um, and what I think is really cool about the acknowledgements tier of our Patreon is that you can you can put whatever you know you can put whatever name you want there, and we will thank and acknowledge it. Um, so, you know come up with a cool name or a cool organization that you want people to hear about like six times a month and 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 we'll we'll thank it we will thank those things um and speaking of which <laughs> we would like to thank patoli eric percival buck julia catgut marm carson lord harkin trickster princess miranda ben ben Anonymous, Funder, Janice and Odell, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. Thanks y'all so much for all of your support and making this show and so many other shows possible. Um, and, you know, to let people know, like, uh, like the... Uh, that our Patreon goes to support, you know, broader things that Strangers does, but it also goes to support um, people who help create the show. Um, we pay our audio editor and our transcriptionist, and uh, maybe one day we'll be able to pay uh, guests or hosts, um, but uh, currently, currently we can't do that. Um, but yeah, anyways... I uh, hope that everyone's doing as well as they can with everything that's going on. And we will see you next time. Bye.